0: Today's episode is a little different format. I have been thinking about, you know, what puts me in a place to have a podcast about entrepreneurship. Well, you're probably wondering, and I haven't really done a good job yet of sharing my story, but today's episode really um, takes a look back over the last couple decades of my career and the good fortune that I've had and really tries to set up some of the things that we've been talking about with the other guests that have been on the show and really give you a look into one, why I'm called the lady boss and two, how I got to where I am today and three, kind of what I'm looking to do over the next horizon. So I hope that you will enjoy this episode where we go from chapter one to today. to say that if I wasn't good at business it would be a real disservice to my parents. I don't know I come from some very entrepreneurial people and my dad was I think the hardest working person I've ever um, seen ever and so from a very young age if you wanted to see my dad you had to go to his clothing company and fold clothes on Sundays because he did work six and a half days a week so I don't think that Um, It ever would have been a hurdle for me to understand that entrepreneur's journey is going to be filled with hard work because that's what I saw. My mom subsequently started a women's clothing company and they were very successful entrepreneurs, but we talked about business at dinner. I mean, we talked about who came into the store, what they bought, how many suits they ordered, and it was sort of our, just our topic, and it was what we discussed. I would hope that at some point I had a basic level of understanding of business and lucky for me, um, I'm an ongoing student, so I've always taken to the topic and really been interested. I was uh, fortunate enough to go to really good high school, um, a really good girls' school, and I'm going to talk about how that really got me into helping other women um, later in my career and life. But I did not want to stay um, in the city and state where I was born. Great place, love it, it's Providence, Rhode Island. Um, I really wanted to get out to something bigger and that was because I had experienced a life much bigger during the summers of my high school when I was sent to Paris, France, um, to uh, learn French. And I spent uh, four summers with a French family and I was exposed to something much, much bigger than um, where I was from, and I knew that, you know, being in part of a city was something that I was going to do. So after a lot of negotiation with my parents, I took up at residence in Chicago. I went to school at Lake Forest College and began my trajectory. My luck, I will call it, um, after not doing my best work at Lake Forest College, I had a triple major. I did great in school, but I did plenty of um, extracurricular activities that Um, weren't advancing my life much like probably a lot of college kids but I knew when I graduated I was going to hit the ground running and I did Um, and I went to every career counselor every um, career fair anything that Lake Forest College would offer I went to it and one day I found a company that was going to well they told me later use Lake Forest College as their practice interview and I wasn't interested in them either but I was gonna use them as my practice interview. There's a great lesson in this because this ends up to be one of the biggest game changers of my life. I went to the interview, did everything that I would have done anyway, prepared, dressed up, had my question list, met this wonderful gentleman, and by the end of this, um, what felt like a very long interview, he said to me, Courtney, if you come work at Schwarz, you will be running your own business with our money. I didn't exactly even understand that, um, although what I heard was you'd be running your own business and that's what I wanted. With their money, which was good because I had no money, those two things seemed to jive together and I listened more. They made me an offer to come into sales um, and I would basically learn their business and do sales and that's about what I knew and um, I started right after college and it was absolutely a 17-year whirlwind ride where I did have my own business. I was able to grow. I ended up growing a $250 million business unit in retail, which was very popular at the time. Retail stores were growing. I had the background and knowledge of retail from my family and kind of how that operated. Got the chance to be in management, leadership, have p and experience. Um, and I uh, really had a very, very big business opportunity at a young age. So that was wonderful. That was kind of my MBA. I have not gone to MBA school. Don't feel like I need to um, because of all the experiences I had. Uh, and then one day <laughs> I woke up and um, said, I'm not gonna do this anymore. I'm now gonna sort of take you down the journey of what happened from the world's greatest career Couldn't have really hit any more checkbox in terms on paper of great things about this job. Great owners, great leadership, great experience, great learning, great compensation, great, 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 great. And I come home and tell Larry I'm leaving. That was not great. So I had had this nagging desire my whole life to be an entrepreneur. When I went to Schwarz, if you recall, I was going there to be an entrepreneur. But there were certain things that were not um, entrepreneurial because it wasn't my business, it was their business. I had even gone so far as to see if the family could make me an owner I could buy in, invest in, but that wasn't an option. So I respected that and I respect that in anybody's business, um, but I knew there was really only one solution and that was for me to start something that was my own because that was a goal. I have a really big saying that that day i was 38 years old i had two children um had a husband who was going through mba school this was not the really greatest time to make such a risky decision but it was the greatest time because what was gnawing at me was that the fear of not fulfilling this lifelong dream to be an entrepreneur was so much um, greater that the fear of not doing something was way, way bigger to me than the fear of failure. Luckily for me, because failure didn't even cross my mind. That could have happened. That could have, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda. It just didn't happen. I, was, I knew it was my time to go. So I left that big, cushy, comfy, high paying job. <laughs> I had the vision to start a company and um, after uh, an hour of deliberation I came up with this very fancy name for it, it was called CDW Merchants. My initials are CDW, Um, Merchants was something that I wanted to be broad by design because I had a business plan but fundamentally I knew that as I got into business the business would pivot if I was listening. So merchants didn't really say exactly what we were going to do. It said that we were going to be buying and reselling things. I had heard my customers asking for weird visual merchandise. Like very frequently at my sales job, they would say, do you have pink golf balls? And I'd say, why? Pink uh, Christmas trees, table runners that have gold glitter. Do you have mop heads? And, and I, I just would, I could have just said, yeah, I can get those for you, but I needed to know why. And what I found out that is inside a retail companies, visual merchandising was an under-service department. They were not serviced by purchasing because they didn't have a spec, they didn't have a timeline, and they really were working to fulfill a look that would augment the clothing they were selling or the product they were selling that season. I set out to establish a nationwide company that would service retailers, people with over 50 locations, with their visual merchandising needs. And that was in 2006. And the second week I got an order for 6,000 frames from Ralph Lauren. 6,000 frames. Well, I thought, no big deal, we'll deliver these. And it turns out that um, the people that I knew who could make those weren't able to make those in that time frame. And that is how I found Gemini Molding, which is the company that I run today, Gemini builds It. And we'll come back to that. It's important to note that when I started this company, I wrote a goal on paper that I shared with Larry. And I said, I am going to start and build this company and sell it in 10 years. And like a lot of the crazy ideas I have, he probably chuckled, he didn't do it to my face, which was really nice and said, okay, whatever you want. but do you hear that? I had that on a piece of paper in my book that I was going to buy it, build it, and sell it in 10 years. So wait till you hear what happens because it's just so incredible to me the power of the subconscious mind and the power of goal setting. So start on, get the Ralph Lauren order, Club Monaco order, orders, 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 you know it's not a rocket ride but it's pretty successful Um, by every definition. I had said that we would sell X number year one and we did 10% of that. Now the number that I had given Larry was just an absolute crazy huge number. It would have been um, totally ludicrous to sell. Again, he didn't roll his eyes. He's got a super financial background. He just sort of said, great, do it. And I did 10% of that. I wasn't disappointed because it was a pretty solid year. And then we were profitable, and then I started adding people, and then I started adding services. And about two years in, 2008, the recession hit, and I knew that if I kept doing exactly what we were doing, there would be some headwinds. People weren't investing in their physical spaces. People weren't shopping. Um, I needed to think of a new way to do things. And I leaned back on what had been my past experience and my past background, and that was developing packaging at the last company I was with. And so over time, through some sales efforts, which is good old fashioned you know, cold calling and networking and making introductions, um, we were able to establish a position at Amazon. And the challenge that Amazon posed to us was how do you wrap a book and a bicycle, those were two things that they had, were selling in 2009, in the way that looks the same, so it had to have a consistency, is easy for a temporary worker to do because their busy season was Q4 and could be shipped anywhere around the world. Now, it's just so crazy that just a short 12 years ago, if you ordered from Amazon, you could not get your product gift-wrapped. And that was the opportunity and the problem we solved. So we came up with something where basically um, we had cut sheets of paper for books that were cut to the size of the book so nobody had to use scissors and it eliminated waste and it made it consistent if you were a temp worker during a very busy period of time. We literally took all the thinking that they tasked us to do and just elevated it to the next level and made it so foolproof we, we created a bicycle bag so the bicycle would go into the bag and you'd draw a string that thing closed and in two seconds they had a neatly nice wrapped project and it's so successful that today to this day they still use it different colors but that was really what CDW merchants created. So, that was very successful And Amazon, um, you know, 12 years ago and now. They are a rocket, and, you know, they just, you get into their system and sort of things start happening. And the issue that we faced is that that became a very capital intense program for our company. Um, so, imagine you're making paper and bags and things that are made all over the world, <clears throat> and your factories require deposits and Amazon has payment terms. So just to think through this, when you order something from a factory, you put down a deposit, and then it takes, let's just say, 60 days to make. So you've had money out here, still have money out here. Day 60, you pay for everything. That's the day you can charge Amazon. Now you charge Amazon, and then you wait another 60 days. There's 120 days of a lot of cash that's going out the door, and the margins aren't very big because you know Amazon is who they are so the the it was an inordinate amount of pressure on the business over time as we grew that account to just keep growing that account the capital required sole owners we were always 100% owners um, put some pressure on the business because as I said we were growing so there were other Amazon accounts at the business and there were other salespeople and payroll taxes and all the things and I think it's important because in retrospect when I sold the company a lot of people looked at me and said why did you do that they they just they didn't see it coming they didn't understand and it was simply because I would have really probably had to recapitalize the company to continue the growth it was having and that would have meant having a partner other than Larry and um, that was not of interest to me so as Amazon grew when you have a business, it's really important that you never have, my view, this, some other people may have a different view, customer concentration. And customer concentration is when you have over 10% of your sales with any one customer. And the reason that we say that is because, let's just say, you know, they become 20 30%, and they're so significant to your business. You start making decisions that are really decisions you know they will appreciate or that are good for them, and maybe not right for your business and vice versa. It becomes a dependency that means you cannot operate with all the values in the way that you should be thinking about your business because you always have to first think, will that top customer approve of this? So customer concentration was starting to become an issue with our account at Amazon at CDW Merchants because it was growing we even if we hadn't added we didn't add products there was just like we, we went from US to China to Europe and now you know it was growing and growing and they said to us one day they said hey we want you to be in China and I said well, like, what's that mean well that means that when you can operate and trade within China there are certain licensings you can get um, they, we could have serviced Amazon China and we could have done that for sure Um, And we were thinking about that. And one day my phone rings and um, it's a competitor, an absolute competitor of mine from my past life. We were friendly competitors, but if, you know, my early career, if you'd have said who's my top competitor, it was this guy. So Michael calls and says, I want you to meet somebody. I know who you're gonna sell your company to. Now, he wasn't even, I mean, I wasn't selling the company. He didn't know about that piece of paper where I had that goal written down. And why was he calling me to say that? Because he didn't even know what CDW merchants did. So I listened, and I think that was like I do with everything. I said, tell me more. And he said, let's go to breakfast. I went to breakfast, and it turns out that he had sold his company to Bunzel, and he wanted me to go to a meeting. So we made an introduction, and I thought, you know what? Let's go to a meeting. I like meeting people. I want to hear what they have to say. And as we set up the meeting, it was obvious that they were gonna bring seven people to this dinner. This is really important. Had I not asked more questions, I would have showed up at a dinner with seven people. And no matter what, those ads would have been stacked against me. They would have been asking questions, asking questions, asking questions, and I would have been on the firing line. So knowing that you know, I wasn't really a seller at this point, but I wasn't not a seller, I said, okay, let me bring my advisor. And I specifically did not bring Larry to this meeting for one reason. I did not want them, this big public company, to diminish me and my presence at the company because I brought my husband. Because he's my husband. He's the very critical role in the company. But I also thought, later proving my theory was right, that these seven men would look at me and not even care what I said. They'd be talking to my husband. So I brought our business advisor, he was my business group advisor that I was part of and he's um it just psychologically I think this is important he's six foot five, 300 pounds, he was this enormous person and when we walked into that meeting even though there was two on seven it kind of felt like seven on seven just because of the way we were positioned and they basically explained that they wanted to buy the company because um, they needed creativity. They're not a creative company. (laughs) So we needed to hear more. Why do you wanna buy a company that's a creative company when you aren't a creative company? Well, I've learned so much since that meeting back in 2011. Um, And really what I've learned is the bigger a company gets, the more process you need to have. To so get a lot of people to do the same thing every day, you gotta have a lot of process. As you get bigger, that dilutes some of the creative thinking which is you know, not exactly in line with process. So this company had gotten very big and they knew that there were, they had pressure on their margins because they did some process things very, very well, but they knew that creative thinking and creative ideas spread over their company could really help them with their margins. And it was such an interesting um, conversation and dinner that we decided to talk more. And basically within two months or even maybe six weeks um, after we created an offering memorandum um, and sort of positioned ourselves that we were sellers and that we were people that would um, consider going to market, um, we received an offer and a letter of intent. And we definitely positioned ourselves as, you know, we went out to market, we had um, a look around to see. But there were some things that Bunzel said and did that made it very clear they were the right partner. Number one, um, you know, we didn't want to go work for private equity. They were a strategic buyer. And I think we've talked a lot about that on previous episodes where a strategic buyer is somebody that, is going to come to your business and become your partner or in this case your owner, um, and really add to your business. They know people that you may want to know. they can make introductions. They have facilities. you know I have this lingering issue with Amazon I need to solve over in China. They have a facility in China. They have people feet on the ground in China. Now I'm not building anything. I'm literally putting their machine onto my machine and you know one plus one equals 3 versus a private equity buyer who has a lot of capital and a lot of money but they don't necessarily have the introductions or the infrastructure that can help your business go and grow quickly. So Bunzel made an arrangement with us where every single one of our associates was better off when we sold. Um, better benefits, better opportunities, global opportunities, and many and most of the people that were at that company are still there 10 years later, which is a real testament and, and joy to hear. They did a very good job with the people. They certainly, you know, were very, very fair in, in how they analyzed our business and what they looked at, what the metrics were. I think that Larry definitely, thankfully, <laughs> had an MBA because I'll tell you, these people are, they know their numbers, they know know their finance, Um, they're a public company, they're as ticked and tied as you could ever possibly get. And if you didn't, most owners are not as sophisticated as they would need to be to deal with these people. And really only thanks to Larry and um, our advisor, Gary, getting us through that, could we get through it. It was absolutely um, three full-time jobs on top of their full-time job. It was pretty intense and pretty done pretty quickly. So from the time we got the letter of intent to the time that we closed was only about seven months. And they said to me, Courtney, you have one job during this process and that job is to make sure you hit your sales plan. I said, great, I will, why? They said, because if you do not hit your sales plan, even by a nickel, it will cause concern. It will cause an opportunity for them to relook at the entire offer and see if there's maybe a loophole, maybe something that they didn't see, maybe something they don't like, and perhaps a way to pay you less. That resonated with me. (laughs) So I, literally put my head down and did not listen to the noise of the deal I didn't go to meetings about the deal I just said to our advisor I will go if it is absolutely necessary and otherwise I have one job and that is to stay focused that's such important learning for so many things I mean when someone says to me focus on something you know there's a million distractions we have but I can put my head down and laser focus on something in such a way that literally, I was going to make that happen and have my part of the deal happen, which I did. So we got to closing in uh, February of 2012, and uh, you'll be surprised to know that um, going through something that's a life-changing event, really monumentally changing on so many levels, In my playbook as something I was going to do, start this business, grow this business, sell this business, it didn't feel that great. Isn't that strange? Well I think the missing link was that I hadn't really thought about the next so part of my deal was to stay there and and you know, become a leadership team member at the public company, which I did for a few years, and it was a really great, great, great experience. I learned so much, um, but I didn't reset my goals as to like what was my next. So I was in the public company and I was running our business and I was given another business to run as long as and doing mergers and acquisitions. It was a really fascinating opportunity. I had plenty of great, interesting and fulfilling work, but I knew that working for someone wasn't probably going to be my path for the rest of my life. I was still young and I knew there were other things to do. And sort of throughout that sort of time where I was a worker at Bunzel, um, I realized I really missed being an entrepreneur. There was a lot of process there, a lot of um, just ways you had to do things which were not bad. They are just the ways you run a really giant company, but I missed blowing things up and starting things. and. And really just, you know, buying businesses and seeing opportunities and deciding to do things and doing them and not kind of running it up the flagpole. I certainly do not miss their budgeting process. I felt like we were a Fortune 500 company. Um, it was usually like a week-long process. They were serious about their numbers. They run an awesome business. I mean, they, if you gave them numbers you were going to do, you better do them. And I love that. It was just very, very hardcore um, metrics driven, you know, disciplined business. So in many ways, culturally, we were a complete fit. You would never think about missing your numbers. There were no excuses, no sob stories about missing things. And those are lessons that, gosh, those serve me so well today, especially when I went on to this, this current chapter, which was, you know, not all roses for sure. I have a mindset to do, you know, what it takes, when it takes, and for as long as it takes to make it happen. So I think the experience at Bunzel, um, buying the company, being part of the learning of how does an acquisition get done, then going into their company and running acquisitions with them, um, being part of something much, much bigger than our company and myself was just an absolute super opportunity And it was literally there at Bunzel during my leadership training that I thought of and sort of dreamt up this idea to start and um, have a holding company. Okay, before I move on to talk about what we're doing today and Gemini builds it, I just want to adjust uh, the part about when I worked at Bunzel, why I worked at Bunzel. And um, there's something in any transaction called, um, you know, transition period, and it's often referred to as an earnout or a holdback. Um, real quickly, an earnout is where you're basically staying at the company that you started and you've now transacted and sold to finish earning the money that you've agreed to with the seller Um, in our case i didn't have an earn out but i did have a hold back hold back is where the money is in escrow so this is not money at will it is sitting in an escrow account with my name on it really important make sure you do your due diligence because they come in lots of different formats, but a holdback is where the money's in escrow, and it is tied to you showing up in some capacity, whatever that job is, for X period of time to transition the company successfully. Optimally, if you have a company that is very non-owner centric, meaning you play almost no role at your company, maybe you can hand them the keys and, and move on day one. That's just not real world in small business. So the seller kind of figures out with you based on what role you play, what relationships you have, what the transition will look like, what a period of time is where you can stay, transition the company successfully, and then the carrot is the holdback. At the end of these commitments, you will get your money. And so that is um, successfully what I did at Bunzel, which was the opportunity to be there. And I could have worked there the rest of my life if that was something of interest to me. But that is what sort of led me to um, chapter three, we'll call it, which is Gemini Builds It. So I decided that um, I wanted to start a holding company. And by definition, a holding company is sort of where you um, can hold a bunch of companies or one company or um, buy them, start them, acquire them, and keep them in your portfolio, no different than some of your equities and um, other uh, investment vehicles. And in some cases, you work at those companies, and in some cases, you hire managers to do that. And I'm going to talk really about the strategy of what we're building at Gemini Builds It. Gemini Builds It was formerly known as Gemini Molding, and they were a molding distributor. It's a 45-year-old company. Uh, I approached the owner to buy that company because they were a supplier of mine at CDW Merchants. Good news was I knew them, I sort of knew how they did business because I was a customer, I was a big customer, I was one of their top five customers. Bad news is I probably thought I knew more than I did and I knew probably enough to be dangerous. Probably couldn't have talked me out of it anyway, but I had this vision that if I bought a manufacturing company, I could speed up my turn time to my customers, not just production time. So if we flash back to what I was doing, I was buying a lot in China and I could just see that that was going to continue to be riddled with problems, freight problems, communication problems, sample timing problems, and I wanted to be faster. I thought there was really something to answering customers' needs faster, and I wanted to be in manufacturing. So Gemini Building kind of, you know, they scratched that uh, check mark. Um, The other thing they did was, they did a lot of different things, and I knew that the markets were such that And this is you know 2016 this is well before pandemic and like just I could tell things because of technology would continue to be changing 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 I've always learned that if you're not changing your business model faster than the outside pace of change the death is really near so I wanted to get going knowing that we'd be changing, we'd be pivoting, we'd be adjusting to business cycles. And so I needed something that was nimble and flexible and that's what the company did for us. So I bought that company um, in 2016, really reinvesting um, some of the profits from CDW merchants and, and really going um, on a whole path of, you know, let's just kind of keep building and reinvesting. So that company has taken a major pivot it's it's um, you know it was a big company um, 55 people when we got it a uh, physical presence machinery um, a lot of uh, things that I hadn't been as familiar with but obviously you know once you have one business experience they all sort of... Build on each other. Um, It had some. It was undercapitalized. It was underinvested. Really didn't have a real good vision for the future. So it had a lot of. Well, it was basically a turnaround when I got there and found that out. (laughs) So um, bought it not knowing it was a turnaround, and it was a turnaround. um, And thankfully it has turned around but it was a big sort of chips in move because um, what I didn't see you know right before I made the purchase the sales team started departing and a lagging indicator of business going down is you know when salespeople leave there are sales but when they leave let's flash forward 12 months and figure out what happens then those things they were working on stop And sales go down so there were just a lot of it it was definitely the biggest most um, strategic and um, I don't say you know boldest move I've ever made but no risk no reward and you know if we flash forward six years i'm super happy we did it we were able to then buy a printing company a couple uh, maybe a year later and really the logic there was let's expand the offering and tacking on little companies that are synergistic in some way and vertically integrated in some way so we tacked on a printing company we bought um, an e-commerce company and that expanded our offering and allowed us to go vertically Um, and then we bought a good and significant amount of investment in machinery to really put us in Position to deal with e commerce art companies, and um, that's been very successful. What we're trying to build really is a company that's self sustaining, that has a management team big enough so that Larry and I are not the day to day, um, you know, make every decision people. We want to work. Um, we love working, but things like this podcast. This is a really important opportunity for me personally, and having the Lady Boss podcast takes a lot of time and thought and energy, and I want to have that energy and time to position this where I want to get it. So building the company at the same time requires the right investment in leadership uh, so that we can have a little breathing room to pursue some of the other business opportunities that we have so six years in um, Gemini has been through I don't know a thousand pivots we are firmly on a path of high growth um, we've got high talent acquisition and we're absolutely having a blast um, it is really fun to see that something that was so rough around the edges is really um, got momentum and speed and is growing and it's hard to remember all the bad days because there were plenty of just surprise after surprise after surprise it's nice to now have the ship sort of headed in the right direction and have the team having so many wins Um, people love coming to work when they have wins and that's what's happening every day is there they have ideas those are translating into business units that creates opportunity for them opportunity creates you know bigger uh, responsibility responsibility is more compensation i mean it's just a really great um, way that you know people can be part of something bigger than themselves. So Gemini builds It is the start of you know we're six years into something that'll probably take us 10 years to get to that sort of original milestone that I set out of what the, you know, investment under holdings is. But we're positioned in a way where we have the team in place to go after the next acquisition, the next startup, the next purchasing, and we're just putting in some more equipment this week. And um, it feels really great to have taken the years of um, trials and tribulations, wins and losses, and really putting them onto this path that we're on today. Beyond Gemini, what is in the horizon? I would say that um, the thing I'm most excited about is the podcast. Um, I really think that it's fun to task myself with something that is so relevant in today's day. Um, it's a way to build uh, a community of people and connections that you know is not how I grew up. You know, I was like a cold caller on a phone, but I, it's fun to task myself with something that is such difficult learning and um, new learning, and um, the reward of meeting these crazy great entrepreneurs and hearing their stories and establishing connections and synergies has been just tremendous in a very short time it's been around. Um, Also we'll definitely be acquiring more talent to run at the companies. I am energized by being around smart people. And that's what I hope to do is to continue to grow the companies so we can hire you know, more and more smart, talented managers and have them have the fulfilling career that um, we've been able to have. So I reference goal setting. I talk about it all the time. I absolutely love writing down my goals, telling people about my goals, making bigger goals. They don't seem scary when I put them on paper. So you remember I said that I wanted to start, grow, and sell a company in 10 years. I don't even know where I got this idea, but at the time 10 years was a long time and then i was talking to you about how holdbacks work so in um my situation with bonzo i had a holdback. it was this four-year holdback, and money would get dispensed every year and the day that i went to get the last disbursement i happened to run into the the goal that i had written down and do you know that it was 10 years to the day that I had written the note that said I would buy, grow, and sell a company. My last payment was delivered to me 10 years after writing that note. That is the power of the subconscious. We've talked about that. It is 60,000 times more powerful than the conscious brain. It is working while you're sleeping, while you're eating, while you're doing your job. It's going to work. Subconsciously, I had that belief system and all those years and minutes and seconds were going by working on that to the combination that literally it was just so perfectly timed. It gave me such confidence and intentionality and goal setting and declaring what you want and asking for it. Because I really, really talk about this all the time. I really think you can have your cake and eat it too, but you gotta know what you want. Well, I hope that this little flashback journey um, of my story uh, gives you a little look into what I've been up to over the past several decades. It's also um, fun and why I'm coined the the lady boss. Um, I don't take that lightly, but I've learned um, and been very fortunate over all these years to learn lots and lots of things about this entrepreneurial journey. And it was very fun to share them with you today.